0: Okay, we saw last Sunday the call of the twelve. Today we're going into one of the most popular scriptures, even among those with a nominal faith. This section of scripture appears to be the Sermon on the Mount as it runs parallel with Matthew's Gospels, chapter 5 through 7, although it's more concise than Matthew's Gospel. It's generally accepted that this took place on the plains of the mountainous area near Capernaum. As a matter of fact, today there's a little church that stands on that traditional site. Matthew goes into greater detail, probably to show his Jewish audience the link between the Old Testament and the New, the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus says several times in Luke's Gospel, you have heard that it was said of old. Now I've read the, the Bible is the living word, you've heard that. I've read these Gospels several times and I said to myself while I was studying, what is the big distinction between what Matthew is saying and what Luke's saying? Matthew seems to be more expanded. And Jesus says, what I noticed for the first time was Jesus Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of old, or you have heard that it was said. So what he does is he links Old Testament scriptures and even Old Testament traditions, and he shows them the link to the New Testament with God's grace. Whether he's speaking about taking oaths or hating your enemies or any of that stuff. Luke, on the other hand, seems to give his Greek audience the pith that they're looking for. So the first section is called the Beatitudes, which we know as really means the pronouncement of blessings. And blessed, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, the word blessed is actually translated as, oh, how happy, oh, how happy are the poor, oh, how happy are the hungry. So let's jump in. Verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. At first glance, it appears that the wrongs of society are going to be righted. The oppressed are going to be taken care of. Vilification to vindication, if you will. But if you look only at the physical condition, you've missed the point. A better understanding of the scriptures indicates a spiritual application, because that was what Jesus always focused on, that spiritual application. So, the poor... Jesus said in Matthew 26:11, the poor you will always have with you. Of course, on this side of eternity. And I had said before one of my guesses for why we will always have the poor. Number one is the sinful condition of man to oppress his brother who doesn't have what he has. And also that it's an indictment on the church today. Are we taking care of the poor? But that being said, in that condition, a lot of times it's often easier to hear from God. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, an older gentleman told me about when he was a kid, he said, we were happy, we were poor, but we were proud to be poor. He said he had two parents who loved them, who were Christians, taught them values, and when they left the home, they were secure in themselves. But poverty is not always discouraged that society says it is today. Now, but Matthew here indicates, going back to Matthew, he talks about the poor in spirit, which is a spiritual condition. The poor in spirit means a repentance, regretful of sins, and ready to receive God. I'm just going to turn to one verse in Isaiah 66.2, where God says this, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who tre- trembles at my word. So, the poor in spirit. The second thing he speaks about is the hungry. Well, Matthew says, again, going to Matthew's gospel, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled, or satisfied. Satisfying physical hunger, let's start with the physical and go to the spiritual again. Satisfying physical hunger is always temporary. I know that firsthand. People who know me well say, you're always eating. I'm talking on the phone, I'm eating, I'm chewing. But I eat sometimes up to six times a day, and half an hour, 45 minutes later, I'm hungry again. As a matter of fact, my wife has to chase me out of the kitchen because I'm always picking at something. But God will always satisfy that spiritual hunger and thirst for him. That is a hunger that will be satisfied, the scriptures tell us. Another one of my favorites, one verse, Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen. God says, and you will seek me and find me, When you search for me with all your heart. You know, when somebody comes to me who doesn't know God, one of the things I say to them is, and I take a big chance with this, but I strongly believe it. I say, you know what, when we're done talking, why don't you go home when you're alone, talk to the Lord. You don't know him, but ask him to make himself real to you. That doesn't mean he's going to show up in a burning bush in your living room or something like that, but he will make himself real to you, whether through circumstances or other people, I always challenge people to ask God to make himself real, and you know what? I've never, and I've said it many times, I've never had anybody come to me, come back to me who was disappointed. Because it it always, it's always the truth. And then going on to the next portion, he says, the ones who weep. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Why do we cry? There's a lot of reasons. Loneliness, the effects of crime, rejection, a death in the family, In some way or another, it all comes down to sin. But as Christians, we should really weep and feel our worst when we sin, because we're disappointing our Father in Heaven who loves us and gave us the opportunity not to sin. But the good news is that there will come a time when we won't sin anymore. Turn to Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. Uh, Verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3, the first phase is the abolition of sin. Because we have now a direct communion with God. So therefore, all the sin has to be removed. And the second phase is the ridding of weeping forever. Because God will personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. And why? Because the effects of sin are gone. And then he talks about laughter. What about laughter? You know, I've always known that I've always heard that laughter was good for the body. You've heard laughter is good medicine. It feels good. It's a catharsis. It's a release of emotions. And some of us have such a ridiculous laugh that we cause other people to laugh when we laugh. But I looked in the Wikipedia encyclopedia to get a little bit more on laughter. And it says this, that laughter is the trigger that releases endorphins. Endorphins are biochemical compounds that promote a sense of well-being, a natural painkiller in effect there's a feeling of euphoria so don't you know do illegal drugs and get caught just laugh it'll make you feel good but it also suppresses stress related hormones uh, laughter's a good thing and i have no doubt and you know it's just a guess but why why wouldn't there be laughter in heaven this going to be a good time but matthew adds that blessed are the meek blessed are the merciful blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the pure in heart He adds something a little bit more again that Luke adds, than Luke adds. These people are happy, they're peaceful, and God is pleased with their behavior. Is that you today? Do people enjoy being around you? Or do you have like, kind of like a sourpuss? Or, you know, are you a person of peace or does drama follow you wherever you go? You know, these are the questions we have to ask ourselves. I think of somebody here today, he's an usher, and he's actually not here. He must have known I was going to talk about him, in a good way, though. Guy Merle Taylor, this guy has a dynamite smile. He's always got a kind word for people. He's never contentious. And the Lord leads him frequently to just send out these emails to the church leadership, encouraging us that the, you know he's praying for us and that the Lord is doing good work with us. But goodness follows this man wherever he goes. i got to ask his wife after service, does he, like, levitate at home? <laughs> now the fellow ushers are going to bust his chops saying he's a teacher's pet. <laughs> Verse 22, let's go back to Luke. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward in heaven is great. Raise your hand. How many people feel blessed? Oh, how happy when you're... Wait, let me finish. (laughs) Raising your hand. You don't know what I'm going to say. How many people feel blessed when they're hated, when they're reviled and excluded? Okay, it kind of changes things a little bit. Well, it doesn't come naturally. It's not a natural thing to feel that way. That's why Jesus not only encourages us, but lets us know that we're in good company. What if the unemployment rate skyrocketed in New Jersey? And we had... We had a building and we had a bunch of jobs that we needed to, you know, get filled and we put out a job description and it kind of read like this. The job description, no pay, regular beatings, long hours, abandonment by friends and family, imprisonment, torture, and if you're lucky, death. How many people would sign up for that? They'd say, you gotta be crazy. What do you got going on here? But that's the prop, that was a prophet's job description. They were a special breed of people that the Lord used to get his word to the people. Uh, And Jesus says, you're in good company. You know, what we have to realize in like manner, if we're doing our job as Christians, at the very least, the very least, at some point in our walk, we'll be verbally maligned. At the very least. Turn with me to John 15. John 15, verse 18. Jesus says this, 15:18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. So that should definitely be an encouragement to us. Why does the world hate us when we, you know, oh, you guys, you're always raining on the parade. Oh, you're talking about these morality and family values. It's, you know, nobody wants to be rejected, but at the same time know that you're doing what the Lord has asked you to do. So that's why the world hates you. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Paul says, But indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, you know, exuding what we're supposed to as a Christian, we're going to get persecuted. So that's one of the, the, you know, you see the God's promise book. He'll always be with you. You know, he'll make the sun shine, you know, all these different things. I wonder, that they always put that one about, you will be persecuted, smile. <laughs> but in, in, inside we should know that, you know, it's something that the Lord has ordained and it's something that we're doing for the Lord or we're doing just because we are Christians. And parenthetically, I would suggest reading Matthew's chapter 5 through chapter 7 on your own to get, again, more of a blown-up version of what we're speaking about here. Okay, going back to Luke, I'm going to go to verse 24. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now, not woe as in all rich people are going to hell or that it is inherently evil to be rich. That's not what he's saying. It's not true. It's more of a characteristic versus a motivation. Somebody can be rich. They can be characterized by richness, by having a good, good job and, and just have come into money. Or somebody can be characterized as always striving for that and always Weighing on that and, and, and relying on the things that they have materially to sustain them instead of relying on God. But woe is an oh, how sad and how tragic, the opposite of blessed, oh, how happy. Why? Because if temporal fulfillment is the goal, you will be woefully disappointed and unsatisfied, and it can certainly affect your eternal security if that's where your heart is. Where you put your heart, your, the treasures will follow. Um, I'm sorry, where you put your... How was it go? Where you... Put your treasures, your heart will follow. Something like that. I'm going to read uh, about what H.H. Farmer said about this. And he says it a little bit differently than I said it. But H.H. Farmer wrote that, To Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is not that you are doomed to bitter disappointment, but that you are not. Very interesting, very profound, what he says here. Not that you do not achieve what you want, but that you do. When people are satisfied with the lesser things of life, the good instead of the best, then their successes add up only as failures. These people are spiritually bankrupt and do not realize it. Kind of reminds me of like a baby who eats baby food. That's what they do. They have no teeth, so you got to give them baby food. And they become a a child, they become an adult, and they go all the way up until their 40s, right? And they're still eating pureed butternut squash. Now, And they never use their adult teeth to sink into a nice juicy steak. It's like they're missing out. They're just happy with baby food. I remember when I had um, a throat surgery and I couldn't eat solid foods for like three weeks. And I started eating baby food because that's all I could eat. I had to be in like a liquid diet. And actually, very tasty. Butternut squash was one of my favorite baby foods. But... (laughs) But I started eating it and started enjoying it. And I'm thinking, this isn't so bad. Maybe when I get well, I'll still eat some baby food. But after about a week, I was like, I'm kind of getting bored of this stuff. And I would smell a steak or salmon on the grill. And I'd be like, I can't eat it because solid food wouldn't go down. But it doesn't take long to, you know, to the spiritual man to realize that these are simple things in life. But the, the, the real good things in life, the real meat in life is the word of God. Don't be satisfied with baby food. So, I just say to this, woe to anyone who trades everlasting life for this paltry existence. Everyone is concerned with their retirement packages, but not enough people are concerned with eternal retirement. Where will you spend eternity? Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, really, really reading that and understanding that, like how hard is this? I remember a few years back, my wife and I took a woman in to live with us. She had some problems. She was a little bit older than us. And, you know, one morning she was acting kind of weird. And I, the, the Lord must have led me to the furnace area of the house for some reason. But I found quasi-hidden was a little plastic film container. Did you ever see those things that, you, that the, you know, the, the film things come in? Nobody's laughing. That's a good thing. Well, anyway, those film containers are a common place for people to hide marijuana. So... My mind is starting to race. I'm thinking, what do I do? I call my wife up. I'm like, you got to come home quickly. I was by myself in the house. And initially, I wanted to save the stuff. So when the woman came home, of course, she had to leave. And to say, look, you know, this isn't ours. It's got to be yours. But then as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, well, maybe she's a drug dealer. And maybe, what if the cops followed her to my house? They're going to kick in the door and I'm holding a thing of weed. You know? <laughs> And, you know, I've always wanted to be on the episode of Cops, but not as the perpetrator. <laughs> so I run into the woods, because there's a lot of woods behind my house, and I'm like running to the woods to get rid of the evidence. I'm just dumping it in the woods, right? And I'm running around like a nut. So they say that when you, you know, smoke weed, you become paranoid. Well, this must have been really strong stuff, because I just was holding it and I was paranoid. <laughs> and then the next thing I did was reach for the Doritos. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> Now, by this time, most of you are saying, what the heck does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> There's a connection I'm getting there. Well, obviously, she had to leave. You know, I can't have people bringing drugs into my house. And this is where the passage comes into. She was confronted. She had to leave. And she had. She was very embarrassed, obviously. Um, instead of just being humble about it, it turned, took a turn for the worse. We went to the same church and she started spreading it around that I was a dirty cop and it was my weed and um, my wife and I were drug dealers. (laughs) That was fun. But most people, all the people who knew me knew that that wasn't true. So my pastor now, the senior pastor, calls me. Now here's my chance for revenge, right? To get back at her. And he's asking me for input on how to handle the situation because, of course, you know there's got to be some church discipline there. But you know what my response was? I had pity for her. By the time my pastor called me and asked me for my input, the Lord had worked on me and I felt bad for her. She was at our house in the first place because she had problems and she had nowhere to go. And I said to him, you know, Lloyd was my pastor. And I said, you know what? Let her remain in the church. She really needs to hear the word of God. But she was kind of serving in one of the ministries. Uh, and I said, I think that just sets a bad example. But, you know, please, on my account, I, I would say that let her stay there. So she stayed there and my wife and I would see her and we'd smile her and say hello. But, she was still talking about how it was a dirty cop. But anyway, the point being is that <laughs> that was a good example in my life um, about you know turning the other cheek. And I think Jesus is saying it, it's the it's the mindset here. It's turning the other cheek and people are going to spitefully use you and bless those people. Because really, if they're that vicious, then they need help. They need the Lord. So loving and doing good to your enemies, blessing and praying for those that use and revile us not reacting to reviling and abuse, and giving of your goods to someone who steals from you doesn't come naturally again. It's an impossible task that Jesus required of his followers. And the impossibility of that task forced them, his followers, and us, to lean more on God and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The more we realize how impossible it is to do these things, the more we have to lean on him. You see? That's the whole key there. It shows us how much more we need him. And there was a movie called Les Miserables. How many people saw that movie? Actually, it was a remake from a play or something. But their main character is Jean Valjean, and he gets out of a prison. So I guess it's in France. Uh, and he steals from a church. He steals um, silverware, silver silverware, so that he can, you know, hock it and get some money for himself. He's caught by the police, and the police bring him back to the church. Now, the guy is a priest or a minister, And he says to the guy, we caught this man stealing from the church. Are these, is this your silverware? So the man looks at the Jean Valjean, the thief, and he looks at the silverware, and he goes, Jean Valjean, I told you to take the candlesticks also. See, he's doing it in front of the police so that they let him go. So he grabs two silver candlesticks and put them in the sack, and he looks him in the eye, and he sends them away. So the police have to release him because they think that the the priest gave it to him. Well, what this does is, this act of kindness and mercy causes this Jean Valjean guy to turn his life around. He becomes a mayor of a city, and it's a really neat story. And it shows how he turned his life around. But because of that act of of kindness, that act of mercy, this is the effect that it had on this man. Verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. This is the golden rule. Now, the world has a different... Golden rule, a little bit different from the Bible. Basically, it goes something like this: stick it to them before they stick it to you. In the military, that's called a preemptive strike. If you're gonna, if you think another country's gonna nuke you, nuke them first. But that's the world's golden rule. But Jesus here sends out the olive branch first. His motto was treat others well initially, and you know, don't worry about how they're gonna treat you first. You go out first and treat them well initially. Uh, And you ever meet people or maybe even Christians who have a wall up? You know, everybody's cautious these days. You go to the store and you're in line right next to somebody and they won't even look at you or they won't say hello. And then you you get to talking to somebody, oh, you're a Christian too, and all of a sudden the wall goes down. What's with the walls? As Christians, we shouldn't have up walls. We should be the way Jesus has asked us to be. And I think we use this as an excuse. Well, you know, Jesus will understand. I live in New Jersey. It's really not a good excuse, but people use it. Nobody's friendly here. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is it that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. So the point here is what distinguishes us from the unbelieving world? Again, Jesus set a higher standard for his followers. That's what it's all about. And we also have to check our hearts. And even as Christians, sometimes and I do this too, you know, you think about blessing for somebody and then you think, well, maybe down the road they could do something for me. You know, that that bartering thing that we do, right? And actually the Masons, I know people who are in the Masonic Lodge, that's big. They have plumbers, electricians, carpenters, and they all barter with each other so that they don't have to pay taxes. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about The true test of giving is when you give to somebody and you know that they have no means down the road to do you a favor back. That's what it's all about. Verse 35. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful." I want to read briefly uh, one verse, Matthew 5.45. He says that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is thankful and kind to even the evil people. And so should we be. Because, furthermore, if we realize this, that at some point in time, we were those people. We were those people who, you know, before I was a Christian, I thought, you know, oh, Bible study in college. How silly. Uh, you know, you, you think about all these things, and you, you don't know. You're in darkness. You're in spiritual darkness. And you sometimes you even mock at Christians. But we were those unthankful people at one point. We were those evil people. And God shows them mercy and grace, and so should we. And, you know, if we realize, if we really think about it, somebody's love for us, when we were, you know, in spiritual darkness, won us over to Christ. So what's the purpose to all this? These are rules to live by. It's what's expected. It's what's fitting behavior for God's people. And to sum it all up, this portion of Scripture has to do with interpersonal relationships. And it has nothing to do with the government. And I'm going to make a distinction here, because I think it's applicable. Turn to Romans 13. 1-5. 1-5. Romans 13, 1-5. And there's a good, a good balance here. Or actually, Paul is speaking about the government, which is, is totally a separate issue from these interpersonal relationships. He says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. I actually asked somebody some years ago, well, what about corrupt governments? And actually, it was an interesting response. They said that even a corrupt government is better than complete anarchy. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And I just want to read what the New Open Bible says about the function of human government, their exposition about that. It says, the general function of human government as instituted by God may be said to be threefold, to protect, to punish, and to promote. A, the function of protection. The moment Adam sinned, it was obvious that civilizations would need some form of restraint and rule to protect citizens from themselves. An example of this function is seen in Acts 21, 27 through 37, where Roman soldiers step in and save Paul from being murdered by his own enraged countrymen in in Jerusalem. B, the function of punishment. Both Paul and Peter bring this out. Paul writes that duly appointed human officials are to be regarded as God's servants to bear the sword. That is to impose punishment upon criminals, verses 3 and 4. Peter tells us that governors are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, uh, 1 Peter 2, 13, 14. C, the function of promotion. Human government is to promote the general welfare of the community where its laws are in effect. Paul commends us to pray for human leaders that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And I I say this because people have the erroneous mindset that Christians have to be pacifists. That if you're a Christian, you have to be a pacifist. Now, there's nothing wrong with supporting capital punishment or war for a just cause. That's a little controversial. But the Allies, if the Allies didn't stop Hitler, there wouldn't be in Israel because there wouldn't be any Jews left to populate it. And maybe God used the allies in World War II as to use the Persians to humble Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, so that the Jews could go back and rebuild Jerusalem, if you remember that story. If the Union didn't stop the Confederate way of life, people who were black people might be enslaved or continue to be executed for no reason at all. And it's a good thing that we had stopped their way of life. But the big question is, what is a just war and what is an unjust war? Now, I'm not going to take the rest of the service talking about that. That's And that's subject to each particular battle and war and something that is open to debate. But God ordained government so we wouldn't be living a perpetual Mad Max movie ca- um, characterized by murder, pillage, rape, and might makes right. Remember Mad Max? That was Mel Gibson's big break years ago. Um, when Noah got off the ark, human government was established immediately, including capital punishment. Genesis 9.6 says this. He says to Noah, whoever sheds man, man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And it was a reiteration in Mosaic Law. I say this because the, the correlation here is that there's a politically correct movement that tries to bully Christians into believing what they want Christians to believe, otherwise they're not Christ-like, and that's not true. And they use the Sermon on the Mount as their bludgeoning tool. And now, hypocritically enough, these are the same people that think it's okay to have a mother birth a baby 95% and then kill it. And they have no problem completely removing God from all semblance of public and private life. Jesus didn't come to overturn the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. For example, oaths. Remember Jesus said, let your yeses be yes and your noes be no." The Bible in the Torah said that you could actually take an oath. But the problem was, over time, the people abused the oaths so bad that Jesus said, listen, don't even get involved in that. Just let your yeses be yes and your nos be no. Oaths were, were perfectly legitimate, but Jesus wanted his followers to be held to his higher standard. Jesus didn't come as an anarchist or a revolutionary in the physical realm to overthrow the government. John 18.36 speaks a little bit about that. Jesus, when talking to Pilate, says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus came to revolutionize individuals' hearts, one at a time. I can believe in justice and punishment for evil doing, while at the same time, and I've done this for years, I have an idea, I go into the prisons as a police officer, no uniform, I go in as a Christian, and lead these men in prayer, these prisoners, give them, give out Bibles, s- spend my time without compensation to help lead these people to Christ and help them to change their lives. And there's no conflict in that. See, the government needs to do its job as an institution, and I need to do my do- job as a Christian. Does that make sense? Okay, just make sure. But it all comes down to this. And again, if people are choose that route and say, well, I don't believe in war and I don't believe in capital punish we can, we can still break bread. But I just want people to understand that we don't have to be bludgeoned into because of the Sermon on the Mount to say, well, we, can't, we have to overthrow the government and change the way they do business there because God had ordained it. But a few things. One, blessings versus woes. We are oh so happy when we are other-focused and moving towards God. Two, we will be woefully unsatisfied when we are inward-focused and only concerned with satisfaction about what the world can give us. And three, this portion of scripture, whether it is, and people have differences of opinion on this. Some people think this is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is a different sermon in the same area where uh, Jesus reiterated some of the things he said in Matthew. Either way, that's fine. It's open to debate. But either way, um, it has to do with interpersonal relationships between the believer first and then everyone else. So we're to be held to a higher standard and win people to Christ by emulating his qualities. Love grace, mercy, and forgiveness. This should be very, a very convicting portion of Scripture to us all if our lives are characterized by self-centeredness. And it's a wake-up call for us to be, stop being spiritually slothful and be about our Father's business. Let's pray.